that good? Sound is good? A little bit higher? So good morning, and good morning to a lot of new people that I don't know, and good morning to all those people out there who are watching online. We don't forget about you either. Jonah 3, amazing little chapter. Jonah's mind-blowing success, but so total that it's almost harder to swallow than the whale. Coming from our highly polarized world where so many worldviews compete, it's hard to imagine a society that acts as one, massively repents in sackcloth and ashes, even the cows. What possible link could there be with us today? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to open your word and have a window into your heart. And I pray that you will help me as I share and that you will help each of us as we contemplate your story. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we zoom into chapter three, let's zoom out and see its place in the whole story review what brought us to this point, and give a chance to those who weren't here for Jonah 1 and 2. So, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. I'm talking the first time. Arise and go to the great city Nineveh, capital city of Israel's arch enemy, Assyria, and announce judgment against their people because their wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah arose and went in the opposite direction. God said, go east, and Jonah went over land, and Jonah went west over sea to the outer extremity of the known world of the time, Tarshish, probably in Spain. But God said, not so easy, Jonah and he grabbed him by the scruff of the neck. He sent a storm that was so terrible that the sailors were terrified. Jonah isn't even paying attention. He's sleeping in the hold of the ship. The sailors rouse him and they plead with him to pray. And Jonah finally gets it. This storm is about him. He, and even though he had shown no particular care for the sailors up until this point, he effectively offers his life for them and has them throw him overboard. The sea is instantly calmed and the sailors are overcome with fear and worship. Sign of Jonah, part one. Jonah gives his life that the sailors might live. They praise God. We see a metaphor for Jesus dying for our sins. Although Jonah was cast into the angry waves for his own sin, 
the sailors benefited. Jesus was cast in the waves of God's wrath for our sin. Jonah, meantime, is sinking into the watery abyss. This brings us to chapter two, Jonah's inner world and return to God. As Jonah is sinking and about to pass out for lack of air, his life goes before him and he realizes that not only he wants to live, but he wants to be back on God's side, to worship, to be connected, to be in communion with God. He cries out to God. And in a move that looks more like out of the frying pan into the fire, God sends a giant fish to swallow Jonah. But the sea monster ends up being a lifeboat. So Jonah is in solitary confinement in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And he has a lot of time to reflect. And during this time, Jonah resolves to obey and to do whatever God asks him. Chapter two gives us his prayer in poetry. Then at the word of the Lord, the fish ejects Jonah onto dry land. Sign of Jonah, part two. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of death, after which he returns to the world of the living. Sometimes we say the earth, but it was water. But anyway, that's the metaphor, a metaphor for resurrection. Now in chapter three, we will see the sign of Jonah part three, but that's a little bit later, not yet. Okay, if it's possible to turn off the slide, you can, but don't worry, you can just leave it like that. Once again on land, Jonah receives the second commissioning. And we can see the book, fall, the book falls in two halves. So we have the first half, Jonah's disobedience, the second half, Jonah's obedience. And the first three verses of chapter three are almost, well, they mirror the first three verses of chapter one. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That's verse one. Verse two, arise and go immediately to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out to her this message I will give you. Almost the same as one, one, one two. And then in verse three, that's where it changes. And one, three, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse three, three, Jonah arose to go to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah is finally on the right track, finally obeying. But the second half of the book is just as strange and unpredictable as the first. In a story mainly about Jonah in chapter three, the camera turns to this great city of Nineveh the great pagan city. This was that Nineveh was the capital city, the headquarters of Assyria. Ancient Assyria loved to brag. Maybe we can have the next slide already about their bloody conquests. It wasn't enough to conquer. They had to torture, maim, humiliate their enemies. They immortalized their cruelty 
of their conquest through vast murals carved in stone bas relief like this one to decorate the palaces. Can you see there, there, up there on the top, those are people being impaled, like they stick a, a, a thing in them and they're, it's kind of the, the antecedent of crucifixion. And then down here, they're cutting off their heads. Okay, we'll stop that. Um, we look down our nose on this cruelty, right? We say, well, we're much more evolved than that. But the modern nations are hardly innocent. Rape has been used as a weapon throughout the centuries up until now. Countries still bomb and kill civilians, women, children, destroy hospitals. That didn't happen not too long ago. Use chemical wealth warfare make life unlivable but they usually deny the worst of their atrocity oh no we didn't do that no it was the other guys arrogance however for Nineveh and Assyria arrogance and bravado were part of their brand and part of their public relations to make the other people afraid so the fish dropped Jonah off somewhere on the Mediterranean coast. He still had a very long way to walk, 10 to 15 days overland to get to Nineveh. On top of the fact that he didn't like the Assyrians, and that's an understatement, it must have been super scary. Being sent to Nineveh maybe felt like being sent to his death. Entering the capital was like entering the mouth of the beast with lots of sharp teeth. A second time in the belly of the monster, but Jonah doesn't flinch. Jonah is a much braver person than I will ever be. Moreover, Jonah's message of doom, in 40 days Nineveh will be overturned, had nothing to endear him to the Ninevites. Will they impale him? Will they decapitate him? Will they throw him into the dungeon? And yet, Jonah was speaking in terms the Assyrian. And if, if he came to St. Catherine Street in 2023, maybe we would take him, escort him to the Douglas Hospital it's we we don't understand this right now and yet jonah was speaking into terms that the assyrians understood at a time when they felt vulnerable timothy keller i quote timothy keller history historians have pointed out that about the time of jonah's mission assyria had experienced a series of famines plagues, revolts, and eclipses, all of which were seen as omens of far worse to come. Some have argued that this was God's way of preparing the ground for Jonah. This state of affairs would have made both rulers and subjects unusually attuned to the message of a visiting prophet. Verse three, now Nineveh was an enormous city. It required three days to walk through it. 
Jonah began to enter the city by going one day's walk, announcing, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And he's kind of happy about that. The heart of Jonah's message is that Nineveh will be overthrown, destroyed. This was a real and present danger. The closest I can come to approximate what we may have felt like or what we may feel like is to think of the foreboding we feel each time we hear about another calamity from global warming, especially as it gets closer and closer to home. In one place, it's a flood. In another place, it's, uh, it's wildfires. There's all kinds of things that are happening more and more. And some people are beginning to get nervous. In the case of Nineveh, it seems safe to say that their hearts were being prepared. The people of Nineveh believed in God, and they declared a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So this verse 5 seems to be a summary. And verse 6 and 7 that follow show that it wasn't just a top-down thing, but rather a groundswell that came from the bottom up to the king. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no human or animal, cattle or sheep, is to taste anything. They must not eat and they must not drink water. Every person and animal must put on sackcloth. I'm imagining the cows. Anyway, and must, not, and must cry earnestly to God and everyone must turn from their evil way of living and from the violence that they do. We have to remember we're talking about a dictatorship. But this dictator does not at all seem to be acting on his own and imposing something for which the people are not ready. Nor does the king tell others to do what he is not first he has not first heard from below and what he is not ready to be the first to put into practice. He removes his royal regalia. This is, this is all his identity. He removes it all. He takes it off and he puts on sackcloth. It's this rough stuff that shows humility. every symbol of power and authority. And, he go, and he's even ready to go without even water. And I'm telling you over there, it's really hot. So going without water will give you a big headache. This is a total opposite, the opposite of a serious brand. And I imagine the cows and sheep mooing and baaing all day long would have been quite an appropriate soundtrack. Everybody's feeling in the moment. Who knows 
perhaps God might be willing to change his mind and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not die. My impression is that Jonah did not add a conditional clause and say, if you repent, God may relent. Because remember, Jonah doesn't like the Assyrians. He wants them to die. But that the Assyrians, convicted of their sin, were so desperate that they just had to try. Let's all hold stop. Let's go. But they're in the Old Testament, we see that God's warnings of doom are not empty threats, but their purpose is repentance. God wants us. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. We got to have the next slide. I'm sorry, sorry. There they are. You want you to contemplate them. Um, God wants to relent when there when there is repentance. Jonah didn't think the Ninevites should be given that chance. More than that, more about that in chapter four. Uh, chapter four is next week. Verse 10, when God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil way of living, God relented concerning the judgment he had threatened them with and did not destroy them. So, was Jonah a false prophet? In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed, no? It didn't come true. Actually, it did. Because the word is overturned. And overturned very often means destroyed, but not always. Sometimes it means transformed, as in Jeremiah 31, 13. I will turn or transform, it's the, verb, the same word in Hebrew, their mourning into joy. In 40 days, Nineveh was transformed. Fast forward 500 years to the first century with Jesus in the region of Galilee. We can just leave this sign, it's okay. Sign, oh, no, maybe, uh, okay, that's good. Sign of Jonah, part three. How do we receive the sign? This is uh, the, the New Testament passage. The people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented when Jonah preached to them, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus was speaking to the people in the towns around the Sea of Galilee, where he grew up. They had heard him preach with authority. They had recently witnessed him heal a demon-possessed man who was both blind and unable to speak. And yet, they have the nerve, they have the audacity to ask for another sign. Jesus doesn't do miracles like a trick dog or a magic show. He says he will give them no sign except the sign of Jonah. 
And yet, this is the greatest sign of all for those who have eyes to see. There could be no greater sign than Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. And what was that sign? Let's see. Okay, there you go. Okay, the Messiah gives his life so that the people might live. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, and then he comes back from death to life. And now we're the third part. The repentance of Nineveh shows that God's grace goes beyond race out into mission. God reaches even the most hardened sinners. Those who believe in him and repent of their sin are saved from God's wrath. If God can forgive wicked Nineveh who repents, this shows that God's grace reaches beyond the chosen people to the entire world. And that's why we're sitting here, because we are, well, most of us, I don't think, are part of the people of Israel. God's grace goes beyond race to mission. The key is that Nineveh repents. What the people of Israel in Galilee during the time of Jesus were not doing. The people of Nineveh got the message, and at least for a time, I'd say one generation, they repented. Then they went back to their old ways, but God demonstrated his grace to them. The people of Galilee of Jesus' day, who had so much more privilege, persisted in pride, hardened hearts, and rejected the very Son of God sent to them in person. What about us two millennia later? Okay, you can put that question in it. Okay. Which people do we resemble more? Are we like the people of Galilee, self-satisfied by our own religiosity? Do we only hang out with our comfortable group? Or are we willing to be sent by God to those of us, to those who are different from us? And those that we don't naturally like or feel drawn to? even if it's just across the street. Or, like the people of Nineveh, are we aware of our own sinfulness and ready to repent, to cry out to God for mercy, to trust in his grace? Can we believe that God still wants to save hardened sinners? I confess that sometimes I feel like, oh, wow, my world, they're too evolved in their own thinking and they'll never come around to, you know, I'm like, they won't understand. I, I tend to give up too fast. And it's hard to believe in massive repentance if you haven't experienced it. But there have been times in history where the Spirit has moved many people, many people in Difficult times have come to repentance. 
And I think God is calling us to pray for that, to ask that it happen in our world. And maybe all these calamities of global warming are actually helping people to get more scared and start thinking more about who God is. And I mean, it, it makes you think of bigger realities, hopefully, than your own little comfortable life. And I remember a decade or so in the 70s or 80s, because I'm very old, uh, when many people were turning to God. Every church I knew was growing. There are periods when things, and that could come again. We mustn't decide for God what he can and cannot do. I don't believe we will see a repentance exactly like Nineveh with the cows and the sheep any more than I believe that God will probably use a big fish a second time. But we must not be afraid for God to surprise us. And maybe the things we most fear may be used to deliver us and to transform us. So that's our key word here, transform. Lord, we pray, we, we praise you that you have saved us and given us an eternal hope. And we pray that we not be afraid or ashamed to talk about you, to share this hope and help people avoid the disaster ahead. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.